This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. This is Bonjour Chai, the All the Genders of Genesis edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal. I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal and David Sklar in Calgary, along with a very special guest. We are all your frozen chosen. On today's show, we feasted, we have fasted, we have shaken palm fronds at the sky, at the ground, all around. Another holiday season is behind us. If Einstein's definition of insanity holds up, then the Jewish people en masse must be unequivocally certifiable. But I digress. Jews... We know from contests, the Olympics, the Nobels, the Oscars, Tony's elections, we can tell you how many Jews won, how many lost because of that anti-Semite judge, which for Stunken a Gornisch never should have been nominated in the first place. All that pales in comparison to what Jews around the world have been awaiting with proverbial bated breath. The one that really matters, the holy of holies of competitions, the great Canadian Sermon Slam. For the past month, we at Bonjour Chai have been showcasing some of the best of the best. We have been overwhelmed by the number of submissions we've received, and truly there were some remarkable gems in there. But there can only be one winner. And after careful deliberations with our expert panels, with all of your input as uh, listeners, it gives us great pleasure to announce the winner of the 5783 Great Canadian Sermon Slam, Dr. Rabanit Rachel Turkinitz. Rachel, thank you. Welcome to Bonjour Chai. How does it feel? Thank you, thank you. Well, I'm I'm thrilled, but I'm also really honored. You know, when I saw your email, I wasn't even sure how to respond. I just kept reading it over and over. So I really am very thrilled and honored um, with with this award. It comes with uh, a couple of things. Uh, we've decided because it's Cheshvan and rabbis are. Um, needing this break, uh, we will be sending you uh, to a spa for Ooh. a day um, to, to decompress and relax. For the year, we are giving you the honor of bearing in your office the Kiddush Cup. We <laughs> have this um, trophy that we have made for your office to hold on to cherish and for everybody to ask <laughs> that you are the winner of the Great Canadian Sermon Slam for the year. We are going to take it back <laughs> next year to hand over to, to whoever is going to come up next. Um, but uh, we'll send that to you uh, as soon as Canada Post is able to get that to you. Amazing. That's the best Kiddush Cup I've ever seen. <laughs> it rivals the Stanley Cup, well, but this one's better. <laughs> I, I would hope so. My, my dream one day is to make Kiddush on the Stanley Cup, and uh, uh, we're working on it. Um, so we're going to have you here uh, for the whole show. Uh, I know that we have a segment uh, later on where we're going to get to learn some Torah with you as well. Um, but we want to talk about your career, how it's shaped and been shaped by Canadian Jewry, amongst many other things. Um, why don't we start with the Toronto Heschel School? The Toronto Heschel School actually was, it, it's, it's kind of came together um, backwards uh, when you think about how schools usually form. Uh, usually what happens with private schools is that parents who are like-minded about an educational approach for their children get together and then they form an entity together and then they go in search of educators who likewise are like-minded and will be able to, you know, fulfill the vision 
so to speak. But the Toronto Hessian School happened the other way. It's educators who came together um, and we had the vision and we had the vision of holistic Jewish education, the idea of integrating the general studies and the Judaic studies and the arts into one fluid curriculum that educates and speaks to the child in the totality of their identity, uh, rather than the, the traditional approach, which has been sort of half a day, your, your Hebrew studies, half a day, your English studies, and the two really never speak to each other. Um, and, you know, I remember as a child experiencing that because I, I was learning about um, the in in my uh, Jewish history class in Hebrew, the Mas'ei Hatzlav, the the cross carriers in history, and and how traumatic it was, and how horrible it was. But then I was also learning about the Crusades in my general studies without that Jewish perspective. And for years, I didn't realize they're the same thing. It's just that one is being taught to me this way, and one is being taught to me this way. Um, and and so the Toronto Hessian School educators who said we need to really approach this holistically for the sake of the child. And we did. We came up with innovative curriculum. We, we each had our area of expertise and our area that we fiercely protected um, in our discussions. And mine was the Judaics. And we ended up with something that I'm really very, very proud of. It's been, you know, studied and, and copied and used as a model for other schools to likewise create this integrated curriculum that includes the arts so that children, every child is an artist. And then as we become adults, we become self-conscious and we start to shut that down or to move it into private domain. But if we can celebrate the artistry in every child, then we celebrate their unique expression. And so we wanted to also have that as part of the curriculum. Um, and, you know, so we had like wonderful things of, you know, children who were learning in, in kindergarten and grade one about creation were then creating their own um artistic expression of it as the impressionists would have done or as the, you know, cubists would have done. or And, and it just becomes a beautiful meeting place of everything. So it's ongoing, it's growing, and, and it's, uh, it's really something that is, I'm, I'm proud to say, continuously a work in progress. We're continuously updating and training and bringing in ideas and just uh, growing that way. When I was in yeshiva, I remember that anytime one of the yeah. rabbis would, you know, skip a verse or skip a Rashi or something like that, you'd inevitably, <laughs> like, oh, that, that one probably yeah. says something really yeah. interesting and you inevitably want to go to it. So censorship was never a good idea. Um, but I had a, you know, when I was a teacher, I had a, a, a mentor who uh, told me about a, a mentor of his who taught graduate level math as well as second grade and how in a, a, to, for a great educator, the skills are very much the same because um, you're teaching ideas. And so um, how do you, you're thinking as a uh, educator in a primary secondary context um, transition towards thinking about university education and, uh, and your work at York university? So it actually happened almost the other way around um, when I was a graduate student um, in Boston, I started um, adult education. So I started a home study Torah class, which actually I'd been asked to do. Um, uh, one of my co-students uh, uh, was um, 
the up-and-coming leader of the Makuya uh, group in Japan, which is a Christian, Japanese, very Zionistic uh, group. And he had uh, fellow uh, members with him in Boston, and their wives wanted to study Torah. And um, their second language was Hebrew, interestingly enough. So that was my first encounter with adult education, was teaching these women uh, Torah. And we started in Breshit. And it, <laughs> it was wonderful because we started and then they asked me the question. They said, could you show us the verse where it says we must obey our husbands? And I said, there is no verse in Torah that says you must obey your hundreds and your husbands. And then they're like talking to each other in Japanese. And then they keep asking me to show them the verses about obedience and gender roles that aren't in the Torah. So clearly there was this, you know. They're in the, they're in the revised version in the, in the New Testament. Sure, they're in the interpretive. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, not, yes. absolutely. But they're not, they're not literally there. So, so that sort of got me interested in adult education, which when we returned to Toronto, I um got a job at York and at the same time a job at uh, Chat, the high school. Um, and I was um, teaching Talmud at Chat and I was in the humanities faculty at York, which eventually grew to uh, a place in the faculty of education as seconded over from humanities at York. So I was actually doing adult education and I was running um, informal in-home uh, Jewish studies. So it started on the adult level. And from there, you know, we, the, the Heschel experience brought me to the, the primary education. I was also teaching at USDS. I was, I was really just a little bit of all the age groups. Um, and as I had started uh, back in Toronto, um, once I, I completed my education. So I was kind of involved in all the different age groups uh, almost simultaneously. I'd also, I'd like to talk about all the work you've been doing for women's rights in religious institutions. You know, I, I'm curious what some of the earlier challenges were and where do you see women's positions in synagogue and Jewish institutions today? It actually started and I didn't see it, I didn't see it coming at all. When I was um, an adolescent and I was in a Jewish day school and we started to learn Talmud, I think I was in grade seven and I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the thinking of it. I fell in love with the frame and the logic and the arguments and the rabbis and the, I just fell in love with it. And it was fine for a few years. And then when I graduated, um, well, middle school, then it was junior high, but middle school, I was up for the Talmud Award. I had won the Talmud Award and I was told that the school wouldn't give it to me because a girl can't get it. It has to go to a boy. And that was my first encounter with the, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't understand what you're saying to me. And um then as I got into high school, studying Talmud wasn't even offered to the girls. And I had to go and speak to um, the principal to ask how I can continue to study this. And I was told if I can get the rabbi who's teaching it to agree to have me in the class, then that would be fine. I'm just curious um, what denomination the school you went to was. It was the only Jewish day school. And it was um, 
orthodox but community-based, meaning the curriculum and the, the okay. teachers were orthodox and the Judaics, but it was the whole yeah. community was there. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. And go on, um, go on. so the rabbi, we spoke about it, and he said, if I could convince two other girls to come into the class, then we could join, but I can't go on my own. So it, uh, you know, it, it, I can tell you the, the, the difficulty of convincing two other girls to come to a Talmud. You hadn't yet seen Yentl at the time at that moment. Yet. No, no. I actually, when I watched Yentl, I just sat there with my head in my hands. I couldn't even really, it, it was uh, an interesting movie for me to watch, but I did convince two friends to come and we sat there and it was so wonderful, it, and I, I just thrived and loved it, and it got to the point where it's the same rabbi for a couple of years, and after a couple of years, he would come to me and ask if I could start the class and do the review, because he'd like to grab a coffee, and, you know, so it just, it, it was so good, it was so lovely, and then I got to grade 13, at that time there was a grade 13, and it was something called the Yeshiva Stream, which was all of the Hebrew studies would be Talmud-based, not open to girls at all, but it was the first year that we computerized the schedules and nobody had programmed the computer that if someone named Rachel applies to Yeshiva Stream, it shouldn't let me in. So it did let me in. It put me, it put it in my schedule. And that was a year of such turmoil, such hardship, because it was a different rabbi teaching it. And this rabbi was insistent that no girls so we tried everything. We tried a mechitza, um, a, like a wall, an accordion wall, where the boys were in the Beit Knesset, and I was on the other side of the accordion wall in the lunchroom, trying to listen to the class. And the rabbi paced, and I didn't know he was pacing. So he's fading out, and he's fading in, and he's fading out, and he's fading, and I can't figure out what's going on. And he would leave for a few minutes, and the boys would open the accordion and say, quick, give me your questions. I'll ask him when he comes back. Like it was just this, it was really. That's wonderful. At least you had accomplices. I did. Like, I did. I did. There was no pushback from even your classmates. My That's classmates wonderful. were upset by it. They really wanted. Uh, and then around Pesach, that rabbi had to leave. And one of his students from yeshiva came in and my accomplices, my allies said to me, they opened the accordion the first day before he came. And they said, just come and sit. Don't say anything, just as if you've been here the whole time, just come and sit. And I sat there and I just cringed. I just, I couldn't even lift my eyes. And I felt him walk in and I felt him, I heard him stop walking, felt his eyes on me. And then he just came over and said to me, I don't know what you're doing here, but if you keep an empty seat on either side of you and you don't say anything, then I will turn a blind eye to your presence. And that was how I was able to enter the class. So I think through experiencing that and all the, the steps and hardships along the way, I became aware of the huge exclusion that was going on. And even, and I have to say, not just religiously, when I, when I did my doctorate um, and I, in Talmud um, and Midrash, and I was the only woman in the program, um, I, you know, at universities, professors were walking in and saying, gentlemen, let's begin. And, you know, total unawareness that I'm sitting there. Or in Israel, when I was in the faculty of uh, in Talmud studying in Israel, 
again, the only woman sitting there and the, the language, the, the way that the professors were addressing, um, we were, we were doing the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and some of the scrolls had fused to the one beneath. So you could on top, so you can only read it with a mirror. And the professor would turn to me and say, you know, can I have your mirror? And I think, why do I have a mirror? And you've got a room full of people. You're not asking anyone else if they have a mirror. Like it All was the boys with their tefillin mirrors. There was not, <laughs> nobody had them around. Huh? <laughs> it was really, uh, uh, it was really something. It, it just kept happening over and over. And, um, and then I would, you know, I'd start to have discussions through the years with colleagues and friends who were rabbis, Orthodox rabbis. And I would ask them about things like, you know, a woman having an aliyah. And I would say, you and I know that halachically, this is not a problem. Why can't we get there? And the various answers I got, the various awareness I I realized that so much of it is sitting on politics and community and not really on Torah, as much as people think it's sitting on Torah. And that's when I, I felt that, you know, education is the key. And then let people make their choices. But the fact that people don't know that it's it's not as ingrained as, you know, perhaps they think it is. So how did that all translate? Did you stay in a more open orthodoxy world? Or did you feel like you had to transition into something a little more flexible and less denominational um, in order to be included in the way that that you wanted? I think that the positioning community-wise came more as my family was growing and all of our awareness was broadening. Um, My husband and I kept looking for a community where we could put our kids in the room in a shul and say, look around, that's what we're talking about. And we couldn't find it. And, you know, and the kids would ask, like, you know, where, what is our community? What is our, because they would get asked. And, you know, we, my husband and I, half jokingly and half not, because I also have a Sephardic background, as well as Ashkenaz, and my husband's Ashkenaz. And so I said, if you're ever asked, then first of all, you're Ashka Sephard. And, and then we told our kids, listen, you're reservadocs. You're, we're, we're taking the beauty of all of the different philosophies and communities and we're bringing them together into our home. Um, and, you know, it just, it really, it, I think I realized, and my husband and I realized that it's not that we can't find the community that fits us, is that there isn't a community that's comfortable with us. And so that was that sense of feeling that it's not quite merging. I mean, I spent most of the past year living in Toronto, and there are plenty of options now for egalitarian minions of many different types and denominations. So it looks like things have at least shifted since the, the days of being on the other side of an accordion. Yes, no, they really have. And, and also, even when I, as I mentioned, I went to teach at CHAT when I first returned to Toronto with, after the, the doctorate. And I was teaching Talmud and there were girls sitting in the class. It was a mixed class. And so I asked the girls, did any of you have trouble registering for this class? And they looked at me like I, they didn't actually understand. They really didn't understand what I was asking. And I thought, like you presented well, them with a rotary phone. Yes. I'm the dinosaur saying, did you? And I, I thought, well, thank God, because now it's, it's taken one generation and, and we've moved. So how does this all culminate in you uh, making the transition to the clergy? 
finally, and and help me with the with the title Rabbanit. Um, where, where did that choice come from? People were like they were coming up to me and saying that you know privately that they want me to know that I'm their rabbi, and they come to me with their Jewish questions, and I would always encourage them to find a community rabbi. Um, and you know, we'd studied all the texts where the Mishnah and the sages say that you have to, you know, make a rabbi for yourself. The, that idea that people might reject it, but you've got to. If this is the person for you, then you've got to to kind of push them into that in your life for you. And I resisted. And then um, over a year ago, I was approached by. Um, a synagogue in uh, Toronto that I've, I've had a long-standing relationship with as, as a, a little girl, my family did, and I'd been sort of part of their educational process on the Bima for a long time, and they found themselves without a rabbi. Their rabbi had, um, had left the synagogue, and they asked if I could step in, and I did, and I accepted, and I found myself in the role. And um, it, I think in experiencing it, I realized how many threads in my life were finding a place of merge. They were finding their intersecting moment of everything, the, the, the study, the, the awareness of, of Torah in our world, community, people's lives, the personal, um, you know, all of it just merging together in one place. And I loved it. And, and, you know, it, I, I kind of had that moment of, you know, I do believe personally that God intervenes in our lives. And, and I had that moment of, I guess I had to be put in a position of doing it, right? You do it and then you understand. And so I was put in that position of doing it. And then I understood, oh, this is, this is the culmination of all the threads. Um, in choosing a, a, a title, because people were saying, well, what are we going to call you? Um, I, I'm, I'm didn't have smicha and I'm currently just a, a handful of months away from smicha. Um, you know, so it's scheduled in a few months, but I don't have it in this moment. And so I didn't want to take the title rabbi. And I also wanted to acknowledge, um, gender that I'm a woman. And, you know, I know that we're the, the Jewish world is still trying to figure out what to call these women religious leaders. The women themselves you know, are, are still figuring yes, it out. I, yes, yes. I'm, I'm married to are, one as well. Yes, yes. And, and it is really, it's not a default position. It's not, you know, as one rabbi said, when we talk about inclusivity and women in, in Jewish life, it's not add women and stir. It's not just, you know, well, let's just put a woman in there and now we're all equal. It, it doesn't work that way. There's a, there's a very intense layered um, process that occurs. And so I went through a lot of the, the titles and I thought, well, Rabbanit actually has that sense of Rav and Rabbi. It has that in Hebrew, that acknowledgement of gender. It has that place of leadership. And it also has that sense of, well, to me, humility and equal equalization because a rabbinite is a title that any woman could could bear and hold and be proud of. And so I, I opted for that. 
Well, let's take a break uh, really briefly for our sponsor. And when we come back, you um, have a text that you are going to share with us and learn with us. Usher us into a new uh, sermon, uh, a way of thinking uh, for Bereshit. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. And we're back. Okay, Rachel, um, why don't you uh, introduce uh, this text and we will uh, put a link to the text actually in the show notes so that people can actually follow along if they want to. Um, Why don't you introduce the text um, and tell us where you want to go with it? So as we're um, getting ready to start reading Genesis again as a people, um, I, I wanted to look at the creation of humanity And I wanted to look at it very specifically through Jewish text and try not to have the influence of the of the other religious texts and their reading of Jewish text. So I'm trying to sort of filter it really only to a Jewish reading of our text, raising the question of man and woman and are they created the way we've all thought or been taught? when we look at Jewish text, and what does that say about gender spectrum, and what does that say about gender role? So that's really the, you know, how I want to be looking at these texts, and of course, always starting with Torah, and there are certain words that I haven't translated, and I haven't translated them on purpose, neither have I capitalized them, because that would make a difference as well. So the very first one is coming Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, God created the Adam. I've not translated that. I've kept it in the Hebrew without a capital, in God's image. So first of all, just a word about how I'm translating these texts. If you put a capital to Adam, it becomes a proper noun and it becomes his name. And then I can say his because it's a man's name. But the Hebrew never does that. The Hebrew tells us this creature has been shaped from the Adama, the earth. And so we'll call it an earthling. We'll call it an earth creature, an Adam. So you hear in the language in the Hebrew is telling you this is of the earth creature. So we're just going to call it Adam because that's what it says there. And this creature is in God's image. And it goes on and says, in the image of God, did God create him? And then I put slash it, because in Hebrew, the pronouns are equally gendered and non-gendered. So the pronoun for him is also the pronoun for it. The the pronoun for her is the pronoun for it. So I don't want to make the choice. I want to offer what the Hebrew is saying. But then it specifically says, male and female, did God create them? So now we're looking at a text that's telling us, oh, so this earth thing is some kind of singular but plural being. Okay, that's about all we know. 
Because I, I just want to say this is a question that's always been on my mind. Every single time I've read this passage, it's always come up, you know, creating Adam. And then all of a sudden, male and female created them. And I'm always thinking, wait, did, did he just create Eve? What's going on? Why is then Eve being talked about a few sections down? Was this, an, you know, I think they brought yep. up even Lilith at times. Could this have been the Lilith who didn't yep. want to submit? Yep. What is going on with yep. that thing, with them? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. You noticed it. Excellent. You've questioned it. And you've brought in many of the, the attempts to try to figure this out. But if we actually just continue looking at ancient text, we'll see it's, it, it fits. It, it's all figured out. So as we keep going now, chapter two, God formed the Adam, right? This creature from the dust of the earth. And God breathed the soul of life into his, its nostrils. And the Adam became a living soul. All right. We still don't know what this earth thing is, but we're getting more of a sense of animation and life. And the Adam did not find a helper opposite, meaning that now it's a singular being. And that's problematic because nothing in creation is singular. Only God is a singular unity. So now there's an anomaly in creation. Okay. Then it says, God made fall a deep sleep upon the Adam, and he, it, slept. And God took one of his, its, and now I've bolded ribs or sides. And the reason I've done that is because this is the first time the word in Hebrew appears, and we don't know what it means. The word is tsela, and in biblical Hebrew, we don't know what it means. And the rabbis are going to be very clear about saying, I don't know what that word is. So I've included the word gonna, rib because you're that's... You're going to tell us what, it, what that the technical biblical uh, academic term for it is. It's one of my favorite words. Oh, the, which word are you thinking? The, a hapax legomena. Yes, right? a hapax legomenon. Yes. So <laughs> what is that? It's the, name of, uh, it's, my, it's the name of my biblical studies uh, metal band. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's the... Um, it's the term for when you have a, a word for which you cannot figure out the translation because it only appears once in the text. Yes, only in this text. Then they're going to do what, what is called a shavan. They're going to hunt. So we'll see in a minute how they resolve it. But yes, right now it is a hapexlegomenon, and they're looking at it. And we, meanwhile, inherit the translation rib, and we inherit it because that is the only option that the Christian Bible offers. So that's the one we get. But when we look in Jewish text only, it's an anomaly. What, is, what did God just do? God took something and rib or sides. We don't know yet. And God closed the flesh under it. And God the Lord built the rib or side, which God had taken from the Adam into a woman. And God brought her to the Adam. And the Adam said, this time it is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from a man. And I bolded that because that is the very first time you hear gender. And you hear both at the same time. You're hearing the word woman as you're hearing the word man. They appear equally and simultaneously. And before that, we only have Adam. We only have this creature. This might be a silly question, um, but I'm just thinking about uh, gender in animals. And I find that interesting that you're pointing out that this is a singular and then there was the male and the female, where we know now um, that animals can also have gender. Is that brought up at all in the Torah? I, I can't remember. We will be discussing 
that as well as the rabbis figure this problem out because they're raising the same kinds of concerns we're looking at that text saying, okay, I don't get it. Um, and, and so they're going to parse it out. So let's keep going and then we'll see if it, I think it's going to address your question as well. So we've noticed what we are being told and we've noticed what we don't yet know. Now we're going to move into Genesis Rabbah. And Genesis Rabbah is a, one of our most ancient Midrashic texts commenting on the book of Genesis. It says there, Rabbi Yirmiya ben Elazar said, at the hour that the Holy One, blessed be he, created the first Adam, he created him, it, as an androgynous being. Therefore, it is written, and he's pulling the proof text we just read. Then it says, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai said, at the hour that the Holy One, blessed be he, created the first Adam, he created him, it, duo-faced. He made two backs and set them back to back. So now we're looking at, and these, by the way, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, Rabbi Yirmiya ben Alas, these are very, very prestigious rabbis. These are our great masters. They're looking at and they're saying, oh, Adam, this first creature, was male and female, one being, male and female, androgynous, because it's the image of God, and God is all gendered. So this being in the image of God is all gendered. And they even to take the step of saying, what would it have looked like? And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, well, imagine they're back to back with two faces, each facing the opposite way. And now you have one being, masculine and feminine, who together have totality of view, but they can never look at the same thing in the same way at the same time because or, or they're back other. to back. Or each other. And so what happens is loneliness begins to take over because they have an awareness but not an encounter with each other. Then it goes on and says, again, Genesis Rabbah, chapter 17, and he blessed them and he named them Adam. The two as one were called Adam. So Adam means this androgynous, all-gendered earth being. That's how humanity is created. And then they do what is referred to as a Gzeirah Shavah. They hunt for the word because they're trying to figure out, so how did you end up with two? And it says God took one of the, and then there's that word. And so they search for it and they say, and he took one of the, and then they say, similar to the side of the tabernacle, they're saying, oh, I found it. I found the word. The word is occurring in the book of Exodus when we're being taught how to build the Mishkan. How do we build the tabernacle? There's the word again. But there it clearly refers to the side of the thing. So they take that understanding, they bring it back here, and they're saying, oh, so God puts the being to sleep and separates one side away, not one rib, one entire side of the being. The being is being cut in half, and the flesh is being closed, so that now they have helper opposite them. They can look at each other. They can share their perspectives. They can share what they're seeing, together creating totality, but they are now two. I'm struck by the uh, fact that, you know, uh, Genesis Rabbah, as with most other Midrashim, are um, their sermons, essentially. 
right? They are homilet, they are homilies that are being given by these rabbis, and essentially they are um, answering a question which a congregant may have, or which they are anticipating a congregant might have. And I'm thinking to myself, like, yes. you know, was this a winner of the great? you know, Middle Eastern sermon slam of 3000 years ago. And like, what was the question <laughs> that led to this, which is, you know, what's going on here, right? And they're concerned with the same yeah. sorts of questions that we still are concerned with. Um, they're just being answered in a way that a Midrash is able to create, but which makes sense for them. Um, and we still have a responsibility to learn from it as opposed to saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're just going to explain it by saying man and woman were created, you know, face, you know, facing opposite each other. I actually am going to go one step further. I agree with you, and I'm going to push on it even more. In the Mishnah, which is, again, a, an early rabbinic document, um, they list six genders. And they're not debating it. They're listing it. It's a given. So I think what they're doing is they're saying, and where am I understanding that flexibility of gender, that gender blend, those gender expressions, the latitude of gender from Torah, and now they've got it. So what they're saying is the first human being was a total and complete blend of masculine and feminine, all gendered. And what is in that first human being is the, the spectrum, the gender spectrum. And when we separate it out, we are not changing the essence of the being. All that happened was physical separation to create the, the, the border um, recognizable uh, physicalities, but to include everything that was there to begin with. Um, there is, of course, the rib interpretation is sitting in Genesis Rabbah as well, but it's, it's also sitting along with this one, and this one is the one that's getting amplified. When we look in the Zohar, which is sort of the last one I brought here, the title Adam was found to comprise male and female. The female was attached to the side of the male until God cast him into a deep sleep, during which he lay on the site of the temple. God then sought her off from him and adorned her like a bride and brought her to him as it is written. And he took one of his sides and closed up the place with flesh. What I like about this is they're not even entertaining the word rib. They've discounted it. And they've now said the only way to read this verse is to read it as a side. And in our mainstream reading of Torah, we don't even know that interpretation is there, let alone that the Zohar is telling us that's the only way you should be reading this. We are so taken with this understanding of things and the idea that, you know, within um, humanity lies the gender latitude that was intentional, that is there because it is created there. And in that way, that it is the image of God, that it is the intended human expression is um, powerful. It's very powerful. And when we read it as rib, then honestly, the woman becomes a side effect of creation, an afterthought, something that augments the man, something that serves the man. And it is dictated gender roles and societal structures and you know, everything, even about access to the holy and that it should be the man because the man is in the image, the woman, maybe not so much. It's just caused such problems because we haven't been reading our text. Wonderful. Really, that's like um, a great way to really open our eyes to thinking about how we approach um, Genesis, how we approach texts and how uh, these ideas are all there. 
So now uh, it's time in our show for uh, the Nachas of the Week, where we uh, figure out what made us feel great, what made us feel Jewish, feel sometimes Canadian, hopefully, um, over the past week. Uh, let's start with you, Rachel. What was your Nachas this week? So I had on Sukkot, I was going around with my Lulav and Etrog in Armenian, and I was inviting people to use my Lulav and Etrog and, and, and do the brachot and, and, and do Lulav and Etrog. And I... I approached a woman and, you know, she was um, a little older and very hesitant. And, you know, I, I stood next to her and I said, you know, would you like to? And she said, well, I never have. And I don't know how. And I said, that's fine. We'll do it together. And, you know, um, and so I, I stood with her and her hands held it, my hands on her. And we did the first bracha and she was repeating after me. And then when we got to the Shechayanu, she choked up so badly she couldn't say the words. And I gave her a moment and then we concluded and then she she kind of whispered to me through her tears and she said that when she was growing up, her father had told her that she is forbidden to touch these things and forbidden to do this bracha and she just her whole life wanted to and, you know, this is her moment. And it struck me as, you know, what so many of us now already take for granted and, you know, don't avail ourselves of the power of the moment. And all it took for this woman was the invitation, just the, the invitation of inclusion and, and how much that spoke to, to her life. And then I saw the same thing happen, Rosh Hashanah, with Tashlich. Um, I had gotten together with people for Tashlich by a little pond in the area, and it started to rain, and there was a gazebo, and we went under the gazebo just while it was raining, and I brought out the challah, and I explained about tashlich, and I explained about, you know, feeding the, the swans and the fish and, the you know, using our intention of, of uh, getting rid of all of our perhaps poor judgments and turning it into an act of a mitzvah and turning it into something wonderful uh, for, for animals, etc. And I was explaining all that. And under the gazebo was a, a, a man and a woman with their dog, and they were also just waiting out the rain. And the man came up to me and he said, we're not Jewish, but, you know, we've been listening and can we join you? And I said, absolutely, please. You know, there's challah on, on, the, on the picnic table, please. And and so they took and I watched and they went and they came back and then it was time for Minchan. So, you know, they joined us facing east. They joined us every time we amained, they amained every time. It was just, it was really wonderful. At the end, the woman came up to me to thank me. But then again, she just so started sobbing and she said that she's from Iran and she's so scared for her family in Iran right now. And that, you know, what we, we did together is so powerful. And can we please pray for her family in Iran and safety? And I, you know, and I was holding her and I said, we are praying for them. We are definitely praying for them. And God should keep everybody safe and, and everybody. And that moment of, again, just that human bonding moment. And all it took was the invitation. So I, I really do feel that so much changes in a nachas way, in a beautiful celebratory way when we just open and invite when we just include and just that gesture of someone knowing that they'll be welcomed will just i think change so much beautiful thank you david what's your office this week 
Talking about inclusion, I want to give my nachas to Maxine Fishbein. She's a journalist who works for Alberta Jewish News and just last week published an article about my summer wedding, including a very nuanced interview with Rabbi Glickman. So I just wanted to say thank you for all your good work, uh, your, your in-depth analysis, and continuing the discussion on interfaith marriage. Alana, what's your nachas? My nachas is very on theme today, totally by accident. Um, we talked about this the other day when I saw you at Chill. But um, I went uh, to the Shar Shemaim where Avi's wife is the Rabbah, and they had a women's minion, um, and it was really nice to be in that space. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I used to attend a partnership minion, and then when I moved to Montreal, um, because I affiliate more modern Orthodox, I thought, well, I guess that's it for the Oliyas in my life. I'm no longer going to get to do this again, and I'm just going to have to make peace with that, and then... Um, I got to have an Aaliyah the other day, and my mother got to have an Aaliyah. It was really beautiful to see how many women went up and wanted to participate, and we kept repeating the verses so that as many women uh, could get up um, that wanted to, which was all due to uh, Rabbah uh, Rachel Feingold. And I could tell that there was emotion. There were some people who cried. There were some people who were really nervous. And I, it reminded me of the first time that I went up for an Aaliyah at the Partnership Minion in Toronto. And it was very freeing. And it made me feel like I was participating in this part of Judaism that I didn't even know. Um, like I knew the tune and I was surprised when it came out of my mouth for the first time because it, it, I'd been hearing it my whole life. Um, but it made the experience of going to Shul that much more meaningful and spiritual and powerful, feeling like I could engage in in a new way with it instead of just sitting back and listening. So I really hope that uh, the Shar does more of these women, women's minions um, and maybe inspires other synagogues in Montreal to start um, including women in a new way. Um, I'm going to absolutely, I think we're going to go for the clean sweep here about openness and inclusion and uh, new ways of looking at things. Uh, I was at a wonderful walking tour last night uh, in Milan neighborhood of Montreal that was run by the Museum of Jewish Montreal. Um, there's this uh, artist named Iso Settle, and she um, did a project called uh, Eruv Queer Installations of Jewish Space. And she did a, a small zine about it. And I have a special place in my uh, work and my heart and my life about Eruvs. Uh, and she did a walking tour um, of alleyways in the neighborhood and, and talking about how um, Arab helped her think about uh, queering neighborhoods and her own queer Jewish identity and all of um, the various intersections using the ways of looking at a traditional Arab um, in that way. And I found it was really fascinating. Um, the zine is available online. I hope that I have a feeling that she will be doing, uh, maybe, hopefully, if you're listening to this, Izzo, do more tours, do more walking tours so people can come back and do it. It was a, it was a cold night. It was dark. It wasn't necessarily the greatest night to do a walking tour of, you know, the the back alleyways of Jean Mance and, uh, and, and, and Myland in general. But um, we learned a lot and it was interesting and it was fascinating. So um, go check out that project, uh, Eruv, Queer Installations of Jewish Space by Izzo Settle. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending October 22nd, Shabbat Parashat Bereshit. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. 
You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways that we get listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. I'm David Sklar. And I'm Rachel Turkinich. Join author Karen Levine in marking the 20th anniversary of the extraordinary true story behind her beloved children's book, Hannah's Suitcase. You'll hear how the curator of a small Holocaust museum in Japan wound up on an incredible global journey, searching for a young girl named Hannah Brady. Sunday, October 30th at 2 p.m. at Beth Emmett Synagogue in Toronto. To learn more and register for free, visit beby.org event OCT30.